We are remembering the 1971 Pittsburgh Pirates today. I was 16 years old and I grew up as a fan of the Minnesota Twins of the American League. The Pirates were a team that could wow us from the National League. Roberto Clemente was phenomenal and he was like a right-handed hitting Tony Oliva. Willie Stargell was a power merchant. Besides winning the World Series, the Pirates made a mark by putting out the first ever all non-white starting lineup. Manager Danny Murtaugh made no big deal about this. He very unceremoniously put together his lineup card with the idea of simply winning the game. Isn't that something? I remember Murtaugh on baseball cards looking like a curmudgeonly older guy. A mere surface impression and misleading, of course. Well, Murtaugh's squad had a 97-65 and 65 record in the regular season. They beat the San Francisco Giants 3-1 in the National League playoffs. Then came the World Series against a nemesis team for my Minnesota Twins, and this was Earl Weaver's vaunted Baltimore Orioles. My goodness, this was the year the Orioles had four 20-game winners. There ought to be a law against that. But Baltimore's asset did not spell success in the 71 series. Of course, pitching depth is not as important in the postseason as in the regular season. A staff of three can do the job in October, and sometimes star pitchers are put to work with two days rest. Hey, they have the whole winter to rest up. 1971 was the Pirates' first full season at the shiny new Three Rivers Stadium. September 1st was the significant day when Murtaugh sent out the first ever all-black or all-non-white lineup. Seems rather quaint to recognize that now. Why is it such a big deal? Well, it was then. So we had Doc Ellis on the pitching mound. He was joined in the lineup by Rennie Stennett, Gene Kleins, Clemente, Stargell, Manny Sanguian, Dave Cash, Al Oliver, and Jackie Hernandez. I remember when my twins tried replacing Zoilo Versailles at shortstop with Hernandez, but the guy had trouble hitting. Versailles went into decline before his time. He was the most valuable player for our 1965 pennant-winning season. Sanguian was a very potent hitting catcher with his average of 319 in 71. White guy Bob Robertson was often at first and he socked 
26 home runs. Cash at second base was productive with a 289 average. White guy Gene Alley was dependable at short, even though he did not hit well. I'm specifying the white guys here if that's okay. <laughs> so we have Richie Hebner at third, and he batted 271 with 17 home runs. The primary outfielders were Willie Stargell, Al Oliver, and Roberto Clemente. What a crew. Stargell was his usual self as power merchant with his 48 home runs, while Clemente knocked the cover off the ball with his 341 average. Oliver was in center, and he came through with a 282 average with 14 home runs. Vic Davileo was a key contributor, as were Kleins, Hernandez, veteran big-name Bill Mazeroski, Jose Pagan, Rennie Stennett, and Milt May. We all remember what Mazeroski did in 1960. Doc Ellis narrowly missed 20 wins on the mound. Steve Blass was smooth in the days before he became afflicted with a mysterious condition that rendered him unable to throw strikes. Sad. In 1971, Blass had a 15-8 record. Let's recognize Bob Johnson, Luke Walker, Bob Moose, and Bruce Keeson also. Let's not forget Jim Mudcat Grant, who had been with my twins in 1965. Yeah, he hit a home run in the World Series. Plus, Dave Justy, Nelson Bryles, and old reliable Bob Veal. Veal had a 6-0 record despite his ERA of 699. You have to take your wins when you can get them. Well, I shall now recite from the book by Roger Angel called The Summer Game. And this is about the 1971 World Series. Nothing like World Series memories. Angel could write in a rather flowery way. Well, that's nice. Here we go. The Marvel of the third game played in the immense plastic cylinder called Three Rivers Stadium was Steve Blass. Pitching this time with an almost surgical finesse and using his slider and changeup in textbook fashion to set up the fastball, he dispatched the Orioles inning by inning. In minutes, his rival, Mike Quayar, was almost as fine, and by the bottom of the seventh inning, the Pirates were leading by a minimal two to one. It was a glazy, beautiful late summer day, hot in the sunshine, and cool and autumnal in the shaded stands. Each infielder moved in company with his etched attendant shadow on the ground. 
and a hushed, blurred, quiet, broken by an occasional clank of cowbells, had fallen over the anxious multitude. It was ended by a groan and then a sudden shout. Roberto Clemente, swinging for the seats this time, half-topped a pitch and sent an easy bouncer back to the mound. Quayar turned to make the leisurely toss and was astonished to discover Clemente running out the play at top speed. Now hurrying, Quayar flipped the ball high, pulling Powell off the bag. That's Boog Powell. And Roberto was on. Disconcerted, Quayar walked Stargell, and an instant later, Bob Robertson, the dour and muscular pirate first baseman, sailed a drive over the fence in deepest right center to put the game away at 5-1. to one. Ecstasy along the Monongahela. Robertson, it turned out, had missed a bunt sign when he hit the homer, but Danny Murtaugh somehow forgave him. Well, wonderful memories preserved there. That concludes this segment of this episode. And in my last segment, I follow custom. Departure from the primary subject here as I recite from my ELCA Lutheran devotional booklet. Thursday, October 8th. That's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The headline is Leaders for Life. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 5. Often we think of a leader as someone in charge of large groups of people, someone who issues orders to underlings. But a leader is much more. A leader is one with influence over others, and a true leader uses such influence responsibly. Peter wanted to make sure his fellow elders in the church did just that. He urged them to stand fast on God's promise of grace in Jesus. Instead of letting their status distance them from younger believers, Peter urged them to shepherd the flock willingly and eagerly in order to be a blessing to those they led. Reflect on leaders who have shepherded you. Your elders might truly be older than you, or they might be younger lay leaders or pastors who have nurtured your path of discipleship. How have they drawn you closer to the chief shepherd, Jesus, who will give all believers the crown of glory that never fades away? Verse 4. Holy God, thank you for the leaders who have guided me in following your son Jesus, the shepherd of us all. Amen. Prayer concern, clergy and lay leaders in the church. End of quoted material. Yes, it is October of 2020 as I record this. We are in the still in the throes, I guess, of the pandemic. Everything is slowed down. The nature, have, uh, the nature of church has changed markedly. 
We're hoping to get a couple more outdoor services in this month at First Lutheran Church, but this time of year, one never knows. We have had an Indian summer the last few days. Those can end abruptly, as Minnesotans all know. So I'm looking into my backyard here at Northridge Drive, Morris, Minnesota. Everything looks very pleasant. The sun is out. Leaves are coming off the trees little by little, but it's a very nice day. We'll probably take a walk later while we can still enjoy such things. Congratulations again to the Pittsburgh Pirates of 1971. Many fans in the Pittsburgh area still have fond memories. Wonderful year for the Pirates. Good day. <laughs>